You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Father, we thank you for the care you put into giving us your word, the protection of seeing to it that it would get to us throughout the, the millennia as a way to reveal yourself through your word, that we might know what it is you want us to do and how we are to obey you after you sovereignly elected us to salvation. Lord, this morning as we look into your word, it is with anticipation that you will impact us today, that you already have. And Father, we, we want to be clear in how we understand it, and we want to be clear in how we apply it to our lives. And so we'll thank you for what you're going to do in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to, I'm going to do my best. You know how this thing tends to, my phone tends to interfere, but I was studying this morning, finishing up, and, and one of the things you really shouldn't do when you have a lesson already done is to add to it the morning of, but sorry, you're going to get extra today, no extra charge. And um, But I put it on one note in my phone, and that's what I was correcting just now. I said the word distinct, and it translated it, the stink, which wouldn't come across well in what I'm going to try to talk about this morning. So... <clears throat> We will be looking at 1 Corinthians, um, and I probably should correct this, which I didn't do ahead of time, chapter um, 10, and we'll be at about uh, verse, I'm just doing filler right now while I sit here and correct this, chapter 11, did I say 10? I was just checking to see if you were paying attention. Thank you, Lanny. <clears throat> chapter 11. So, we finished up last week with um, verse 6. So let's read chapter 11, verses 1 through <clears throat> 16. And we'll get started here. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Be imitators of me, Paul says, just as I also am of Christ. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to, to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head, but every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same with her whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. However, in the Lord neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God." 
Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray with her head with head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. So we're going to be dealing with some very interesting concepts over the next days and weeks. In between, and, and as Jess gets back and, and works through first through Philippians, it may be interspersed with that. But um, we left off with verse six last week, and remember, as I pointed out when we started First Corinthians eleven, to concentrate on the fact that sometimes to get the whole teaching, it takes installments, and the rest is coming. As I said, um, and so we're going to see today. Paul ties some of this up very nicely reminding both men and women of their need for one another. But we won't, I don't want to steal his thunder and, and go to that verse right now. <clears throat> so every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. Remember we were looking at the, the ability to discern between culture and morality, culture and eternal truths. And so in Corinth, in Greece, at the time that Paul wrote, the head covering conveyed information to people around them that this was the way, this is how women pray and prophesy in public, and this is how men pray and prophesy in public. Note also, we, I pointed out that, that uh, or actually the Holy Spirit in, in, indirectly pointed out that um, women pray and prophesy. Women are the equal of men. It's only when we try to get outside of the distinctive roles that God has decided designed for women and men, that we get ourselves into trouble. And boy, did the Corinthians get themselves into trouble. So, every woman who has her head uncovered, in verse 5, while praying or prophesying, disgraces her head, for she is one of the same as the woman whose head is shaved. And we pointed out that that equated in that culture, in Corinth at the time, an uncovered woman, her head uncovered or shaved head, equated her with a prostitute. And they didn't, Paul didn't want that happening. He didn't want the, the church to mistake. He didn't want the world around them to mistake what the women in the church were doing and who they were and what they were. For if the woman be not covered, let her also be shorn, because that's what prostitutes did. If it be a shame for a woman to be, shame, to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. And so moving to verse 7, verse 7, Paul says this, For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. The man was created first, and then the woman was created out of man, and the man was given dominion over the earth. In this respect, he is the image and glory of God, and the woman is the glory of man. They are indeed equal before God. <clears throat> Remember that in the creation account, God said, when God created man, it stipulates that he created them male and female, Male and female created he them. He, he actually punctuates that. He points it out. This clearly indicates that man is a two beings creation, male and female. And they are equal, but they have different roles and responsibilities. When a man and a woman are married, the scripture says that the two become one flesh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. This also implies equality. The roles that men and women have are actually complementary. When properly lived out, they both picture the relationship within the Trinity and to some degree and complete the ability for men, male and female, to meet the responsibilities of subduing the earth and exercising dominion over it. <clears throat> both are needed, both are important, but there is an order that God has created and that order again cannot be dispensed with. It is within these constraints 
that the equality of the sexes, the complementary roles of the two, and the obvious need for both, hence God would have only created one, that it is recognized that the man was created first, and as such is the image and glory of God and authority, and the woman is the glory of the man. In Corinthian society, and in Roman society in general, it was unacceptable for a man to have his head covered. It was a sign of femininity and submission. The opposite was true for women. If she removed her head covering or cut her hair short, she was saying to the world that she was either a prostitute or a feminist. And so it is that men should not have their heads covered in Corinth, and women should. This in the culture would be the correct way for them to operate. Finally, note that Paul says that the woman is the, is the glory of man, but he does not say that she is the image of the man, for she is the image of God, just as surely as the man is. Genesis pronounces that when God created them, he created them male and female. And I wanted to read that, not just make reference to it. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea. Let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Now, this is kind of a prep for something I'm going to go into later on, actually what came up this morning. How many genders did God mention there? Two. What is one plus one? It's okay. It's not common core. You can answer. It doesn't, doesn't even have to feel good. Just go ahead and give me the answer. It's two. Sometimes the truths that God imparts are so simple that we have to work really hard to foul them up. But boy, can we. And we'll get to that. For man... Yes? Okay, since you're going into a different area, what is, uh, when it says that woman should have her head covered, what does that mean? In Corinthian society, a woman with her head covered, it was a sign of the authority that... No, 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 no. What did she... What covered her head? Oh, they would wear a veil. A veil. A veil. Mm-hmm. The whole head? It's, it's, kind of it's hard to say, but more than likely, pardon me? It's not like the Muslim. No, probably not. It was more like a bandana type covering, um, and the hair provided some covering as well, but it was more like, as near as I can tell from my research, uh, you're talking about the hijab, I believe you're talking about. I don't believe it was that, but we don't have any photographs. So, and if we did, they're probably only on the internet. And Abraham Lincoln took them. So um, it was probably a veil, a veil covering. And, and we'll see what it's about. There's been so many rumors and, and, and uh, interesting conjectures made over the centuries since this was written that it's, it's almost fun, but not. Any other questions about verse, uh, about verse 17 or comments, concerns? Verse 8. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. Okay. I believe in special creation. So let's have that at the outset. I believe everyone here does too. I believe evolution is a fantasy at best. Uh, a sinister foisting upon the human mind of a false construct that destroys morality at worst. And when God says that man did not originate from woman, that's what he means. And when he says that woman originated from man, that's what he means. Remember one plus one? 
So God created Adam, and then Adam named all the, and he created the animals, and Adam named all the animals, and it was, God is good at setting things up so that not only does an interesting narrative occur in the scripture, but we get significant teaching out of it. Man was created a companionable creature, gregarious by nature. And so when Adam got all done naming the animals, I wish he'd have just squished the mosquitoes, but he named them. God said, it is not good that man is alone. And it was discovered that there was no suitable companion among the animals. And so God took out of his side the, the materials to create Eve, the, the first female, the first woman. Woman was created for man's sake and was created from man. Although subsequent men would have to come, would come through birth, by birth, through women, the first man did not. Adam was created first and was given dominion over the earth before woman was created. This does not imply inferiority, but simply process. This was God's process. Everything in life has process. Everything in creation has process, has, has steps, if you will. I don't, I'm, I'm not as good at metaphor as I should be, but nevertheless, the simple statement is that man did not originate from woman. God created man, and then out of man's side, he created woman. For, and verse 9, and then we'll ask if there's any questions. For indeed man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Woman's role is to be under the headship of man, but this not, does not imply, as we've said, any intellectual, moral, spiritual, or functional inferiority. She is unique and precious in her own self and role. She is created in the image of God. Um, so man was first, and then woman. It's a process that God designed. We have that in our lives. If you, if four cars come to a four-way stop, <laughs> I'm not going to make it too complicated. If two cars come to a four-way stop at the same time, who goes first? The person to the right. Why? <laughs> What's that one? Because they're right? Yeah, because they're right. I think that's in Ecclesiastes. Jim will Can you work that into Ecclesiastes? Okay, it'll preach. Because that was the process that was designed upon, it was designed, and it removes the confusion as to what should happen, it assigns roles to each of the cars, and nobody will die, unless somebody's texting and not paying attention. So God created in a process, in a, in a, in a method, he used a method. Part of Romans chapter 9 is about people who question God's method in everything. Well, why'd you do this? Why'd you make this? Why'd you do that? I think we'll be able to get that answer at some time right after uh, the return of Christ. But for now, this is how God designed it. Any questions about verse 8 or 9? Verse 10. Now here, well, I'll just read the verse. Therefore the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. It has been said that this is one of the most difficult verses in the New Testament to translate. It's actually unfortunate that the New American Standard translators added the words a symbol of. That's not in the original text. The text reads, therefore the woman ought to have authority on her head because of the angels. <clears throat> there have been numerous attempts to make this into numerous things. Just some of them would make really good science fiction Stories. There are some who believe that it refers to the man in her life who is her authority. The Living Bible even interprets the phrase, so a woman should wear a covering on her head as a sign that she is under man's authority. 
Authority is used in the passive mode in this verse, so that is a very unlikely translation. Some have viewed the word authority as a metonym for the word veil. What's a metonym? That's when you use one phrase or word for another and everybody makes the connection. The White House says, what does that mean? It means actually the president said. And we all get it, don't we? We all get that that phrase or that statement or that pronouncement emanated from the president if the White House said it. So that's why um, some believe that the word authority is meant veil. Um, this is extremely unlikely because there are plenty of perfectly good words in the Greek that actually mean veil that Paul could have used and probably would have used there. The third view is that Paul meant women now had authority to do things in worship previously forbidden, such as praying and prophesying. Her head covering would be an indication of her new liberty and serve as authority to do such things. This runs contrary, that whole description runs contrary to what Paul ta taught elsewhere in the passage. The simplest understanding is kind of part and parcel of some of these, that the head covering served as both a proper sign of submission in that culture and it also demonstrated the authority she had to pray and prophesy in public. That's what it demonstrated. She was under proper submission. She was a woman who had not rejected her, her womanhood as the, the Roman uh, woman, women had done with their entrance into what was first century feminism. But it also indicated that she had the authority to pray and prophesy. And that was what it would, that was what it would uh, simply demonstrate. The second difficulty is in the statement, because of the angels. <laughs> this has had some incredibly fanciful interpretations proffered. Some thought women should cover their heads because evil angels lusted after women in the church. Well, if that was true, shouldn't she wear a covering all the time? They can only see you in church? They can't see you when you... Is there something at those doors that a force field comes over you and they can no longer see you? No, I don't think so. That seems to be a, a, an incorrect idea. Certainly angels can see women other times besides worship. Another interpretation was that the word angels refers to messengers or to the pastors of the church. Women should have their heads covered so they would not tempt the leadership of the church. Very unlikely, very unlikely. The most likely understanding is simply that angels, being the most submissive creatures in the universe who were created as ministers to men, would be offended by non-submissiveness. Angels look into these things. It's said in 1 first, in, uh, first Peter. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you through, through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So angels are constantly serving humanity by God's design, but also they're not omniscient beings. Only God is omniscient. So they're looking into these things. What does this mean? What does that mean? Now, we can take that to an extreme, and there have been plenty of fanciful Christian books written that take that to extreme. I like to just leave it at that. The women had a symbol of authority on their head. They were properly submissive in the culture by wearing the veil. It was demonstrated that they had the wherewithal and the authority to pray and prophesy, and they were demonstrating a submissiveness to other beings who were looking into that, who were interested in that. 
It's an interesting reminder to us that while we think everything is confined to here and now on earth, the fact is history is being worked out on a much larger scale than we realize. And so in first in Second Kings, just as an example, the king of Syria was losing battles and he was unhappy about it. Most kings do get unhappy when they lose battles. And he couldn't figure out why. Well, apparently, there was a spy in the camp. No, there was no spy. It was pointed out to him that, that uh, Elisha, prophet of God in Israel, was able to see. God was giving him the ability to see some of what was going on. And so in First Kings, or excuse me, Second Kings chapter 6, um, let me find this. I didn't write down the exact... I'll start at verse 8. Now the king of Aram was warring against Israel, and he counseled with his servants, saying, In such and such a place shall be my camp. And the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, saying, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Arameans are coming down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God had told him. Thus he warned him, so that he guarded himself there more than once or twice. Now the heart of the king of Aram was enraged over this thing, and he called his servants and said to them, Will you tell me which of us is for the king of Israel? Who's spying and giving information to the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, No, my lord, O king, but Elisha the prophet who is in Israel tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. So he said, Go and see where he is, that I might send and take him. And it was still, he was going to take him, he was going to capture him, he was going to make him a prisoner. I'll knock this stuff off, I'll put him in prison. <clears throat> Behold, and it was told him, saying, Behold, he is in Dothan. And he sent horses and chariots and a great army there, and, and they came by night and surrounded the city. Now, when the attendant of the man of God had risen early and gone out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was circling the city. And his servants said to him, said to Elisha, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And Elisha said, So he answered, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he saw him. Behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when they came down to him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Strike this people with blindness, I pray. So he struck them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. The point being that while we live out our lives, God is at work all around us, all the time. And... Please, we, meet, we need to be careful not to take that to an extreme. We can't see that. What we can see right here and now are the things that he's doing in our lives and the things that he's teaching us through his word. That is enough. Uh, fine, science fiction's fine as long as we remember that it is indeed science fiction. Scripture is the truth. <clears throat> Any questions or comments or concerns about verse 10? Thomas. Not in church. In this church. This is in public. Okay, in public. Okay. This is dealing with public displays, public the, a believer's life in public. Okay. Okay. That, that helps. First uh, Timothy, First Corinthians, fourteen, uh, Titus. What else? There are and first and second Peter. First Peter. Am I getting? Is it First Peter? First Peter. 
have specific instruction to how women are to operate in church. I wasn't going to get into that today, um, but we can, although... Yeah, this is talking about public, public displays of, of piety of, of believers, and uh, um, that was, it was primarily so that especially the world at large would not get the wrong idea about women of the Corinthian church who were praying or prophesying in public. They had their proper head covering, they were under the proper authority, they were properly submissive, but they also had the, the authority to do what they were doing. So, not in the church. What communicates to the society at large in which you live that women have the authority to pray and prophesy, to, to minister, to, to preach the word, of, to give the word of God to unbelievers, to evangelize, to do the things that women can do? What in our society, if you saw a woman with a head covering doing that, would that communicate anything to you? I would think they must. Yeah, and I don't know when that was. I guess I didn't study that historical change out. But, but uh, in different societies, it meant different things. In Jewish culture, for example, men wore head coverings. God, nowhere did the apostles in Acts or anywhere else that I can think of, did Paul or any of the other apostles tell the men to stop wearing head coverings in Jewish societies and the women to start wearing them. They operated within their culture as was necessary to communicate the proper things. What was more important was the moral imperative that the gospel be given, evangelization, evangelization happen, and uh, people understand that the church was doing these things under the authority of God. So if a, if a woman was required to be covered in a society in order to pray and, pray and prophesy, Paul was saying, don't, don't mess up that order of things. Follow that cultural norm. Today it's different. In America, I, I, what communicates that women have that authority today? This is when the teacher doesn't have an answer for you. You ask the group, yeah. Or a good answer or a thought-through answer. What communicates it? Any ideas? There really isn't anything in our society, would you say? I mean, do they wear a pocket fob or do they have a, a, an OK2E on their purse or, you know? Yes? Yes. It's a package deal. It's a package deal. Let, let me ask you this. Would, um, how can I do this without getting risque? If you saw somebody evangelizing, a woman or a, a woman evangelizing, and she was dressed like the ladies of the night on East Las Vegas Street, what would you think? It would be difficult to maintain the idea in your mind that she was properly in an, under the authority of the church, submissively presenting the gospel. Because more than likely, she would have gotten some teaching and her dress would have changed. Now, is dress all that a woman is or a man is? No. But what she just pointed out, it's a package deal. And there are things that communicate stuff. There are things that communicate... What's the saying? Your walk is so loud, I can't hear your talk. Our walk should authenticate our talk. 
and maybe even vice versa. So I'm not going to give you a list of how I think a woman should dress. I don't even do that with my wife. She just knows. I've never done that because it takes weeks for the swelling to go down. Pat knows. <laughs> the point is, is it's a package deal, and I, as an elder of this church, am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in the women in this church, he will continue it until the day of Christ. And I, I'm, I'm so free as a, as a, in a position of responsibility to try and live the gospel in, in my life, dress in a manner, if I, and it would be okay, but if I came Sunday mornings with holes in my jeans, Holes in my t-shirt, you guys would run into the room screaming, first of all. But would that convey a sense of authority, a sense of responsibility? It's okay. It wouldn't. Unless there was a, you know, some kind of, a, of a, an object lesson. Don't worry, I'm not going to do that. The word is forthtelling. That's what the word prophesying means. And it, it rarely means telling about the future. It usually means what, what a prophet of the Old Testament would do is he'd say, Okay, king. Here's what the Word of God says. Here's what you're doing. What's the problem? And so women, when they counsel using the Scripture, and men, you could say they're prophesying. When they teach someone a lesson that is new to them or maybe is, is a reinforcement to them, whether it's a woman or a man, they're prophesying. When they get up on Sunday morning in front of the group, and they expound the Word of God per Acts chapter 2, verses 42, verse 42. That is preaching. And preaching is different than this word. You'll notice, I, I, I never, never thought about it until Justin just pointed out, but you'll notice that the word preaching isn't there while praying or prophesying. It doesn't say praying, preaching, or prophesying. Paul clearly delineates that that's not the woman's responsibility to expound the Word of God to a mixed group during a meeting of the church. That is praying, that's prophesying, or uh, preaching, excuse me. But prophesying is a wide word that has a lot of application. And it, and it very rarely, if you study the prophets in the Old Testament, you'll find that the percentage of their books that is foretelling the future as compared to the percentage of their books and their teaching that is calling people to account for violating the existing word of God, the ratio is very, very small. And that's why they, when they got thrown into prison, it was not usually for prophesying. It was usually for holding a king accountable to what the Word of God said. That's what the prophesying would mean here. Is that helpful? Thank you, Justin. <clears throat> so we read first, Second Kings. Now, this is where we'll, I'll get into my little rant. However, Paul says in verse 11, In the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. Paul, in his deep understanding of human nature as well as his being inspired by the Holy Spirit, actually, let me rephrase that. Paul, being inspired by the Holy Spirit, drawing upon his understanding of human nature, turns to defray the possibility that almost always occur when men are given authority. What do they usually do? They lord it over people. They abuse it. They will abuse it. They will take it to lengths that the Lord never intended. So here he reminds men that man and woman are mutually, are mutually dependent upon one another. They are equal heirs of the grace of life. They are both members of the special creation and as such have assigned roles and responsibilities that are important 
valuable and necessary. Male chauvinism is no better than feminism. Both are unbiblical and I might say evil. The church should actually be the greatest liberator of women. If men assumed their role of authority and lived up to the example of the Lord Jesus Christ as they are commanded to in Ephesians chapter 5, women would actually find it not only acceptable but delightful to submit to the authority of men. Husbands in that chapter are commanded to love their wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Today there's a cool saying. A lot of guys like to use it. I'd take a bullet for you. Women don't want you to die for them. They want you to live for them. In Greek and Roman society, most women were, more, were little more than slave possessions of their husbands. In many cases, they were bought and traded. This was the reason, or at least the primary reason, that feminism became popular in Roman society. It was, a, it was an overt rebellion to this distasteful subjection of women to property. Not that I'm, 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 I'm advocating feminism. <laughs> the proper response is biblical complementary roles as God designed them. In Jewish circles, when determining if there were enough families to start a synagogue, the women weren't even counted. In some Jewish men held women in such low regard that they had developed an interesting prayer that ran like this, I thank God that I was not born a slave, a Gentile, or a woman. How demeaning. In Christ, all believers, male and female, are in the Lord and they are equal under the Lord. In the work of the church, women are just as important as men. Their roles are different, assigned different, but they are just as spiritually important and just as vital in the work. In every facet of life, when properly lived out, men and women are complementary to each other. Their strengths and weaknesses meet and improve the strengths, the weaknesses of the other. One final, uh, one final observation before I get into this subject of gender. Paul is likely countering a false idea that the Corinthian women had come up with based on some of the things that were going on in their society, rejection, rebellion of this improper subservience that women were forced into. They were rejecting that and they were, they were shaving their heads, <coughs> trying to fight in the gladiator battles, trying to assume the jobs that men had, uh, abandoning their families. Paul, he probably came up with this as well. The Holy Spirit worked through him to give the, this information to them because the women were convincing themselves that they were independent of their men. They didn't need them. He does this in a manner, by the way, that also reminds the men that just as women need men, men need the women. The men need the women. <clears throat> For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. The first woman was created from the man, but ever since that time, men have come through women, Men and women have different roles, but they are equal, of equal importance. Paul sets up a play counterplay showing that despite the origin, or maybe because of the origin of women, the change reminds men of the equality of the sexes. And unless either of them become too arrogant in their roles, he reminds them that everything comes from God. Both the man and the woman were created by God. Both are dependent upon Him. And in the economy that God assigned, they are dependent upon one another. It removes superiority. Um, any questions or con comments about verses 10 and 11, or 11 and 12? Yes? It doesn't. Oh, to non-Christians? Christians in the workplace. 
um, outside the church, the, the responsibility is still there. Men are still supposed to be the, in authority and women in submission. And that's not well received by the society at large. And uh, unfortunately, what's happened over the centuries, over the generations, is that men have used this to create a society that uh, favors men in some ways. I don't know if it's so much today, although a lot of people would say it is. But the point is, the, the, the assignment of gender responsibilities came at creation. And what Paul is talking about is what happened at creation. So definitely in the marriage and in society at large. Makes it very difficult. And she would also have to answer the question how much of her responsibility would be to, to use her position as a bully pulpit for the correct, for the correct application of, of... Yeah, and that's a tough one. And, that's, and, and, and again, that is going to be under the moral law of God. There are things that will not be questioned, but under, under culture, there'll be some decisions to ha that you'll have to make as an individual. How am I going to be a witness in this work environment? Um, and in, in many cases, women in those kind of work environments are called, uh, called upon to make significant responsible decisions. Can they not make those decisions? I think, not. I think they can in this culture. We have an interesting culture. Um, by the way, what do you do if, if there are 23 genders in your office? Or how many are there now? Like 31? 54? I had just narrowed myself down in the 31. Okay, well. I'm very small-minded. I'm going to go through my little rant this morning. Now a word about gender. When God created male, man, male and female, it was no accident. It was a precise decision by the sovereign of the universe that humans would have two genders. This concept of gender is not fluid and flexible, but rather fixed. To reject it is to reject God's plan and to institute rebellion against God, as mentioned in Romans chapter 1, verses 24 through 27. And I'd like to read that real quickly. Therefore God gave them over, in the lust of their hearts, to multiple genders, I mean to impurity, that their bodies might be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men, committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. There are some significant statements there. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. So it's not like there are grades of truth here. There's truth and then there's a lie. And then they serve the creature. And I would dare say that this philosophy of evolutionary, um, this evolutionary construct is part and parcel of the problem. To reject it is to reject God's plan and to institute rebellion against God as mentioned in those, two, in those verses. Gender is established at, convention, at conception. Maybe some of you when your first child was born and subsequent children were born would exclaim, it's a boy or it's a girl. Did you go, what's 56? Oh, it's only 51. You, you didn't do that. And almost nobody does that. At birth, you're delighted to have a boy or a girl. Worldviews are what are at stake here. The gospel is what is at stake. If indeed man is simply the accidental result of multiple billions of mutations over eons, and the moral imperative that Scripture imparts is non-existent, then maybe men can decide what they want to be. 
although biology will still mitigate against that. But the fact is, men and women were created with distinct genders by the sovereign of the universe. And although I'm sorry for those that are confused, and they need, they need love, they need care, they need counseling, but they do not need sanction for their, their false idea, which will create more confusion and destruction in their lives. It is not loving when someone who cannot figure out what their gender is to help them continue in that misunderstanding. It is not loving. It is loving to kindly, carefully, and biblically impart the truth so that they can see that God created them special. And their blurring of this distinction that God created is not good for them. It's a violation of the gospel, but in their lives it is not good for them. Further is not loving to sanction this idea and cause more confusion. Um, it occurred to me as I was studying this this morning before I came that there's an awful lot in this chapter about man and woman, male and female, men and women, responsibilities of men, responsibilities of women. We have enough to concern ourselves with regarding the responsibilities that God has assigned to the two genders, not to mess it up with how many? Fifty? And custom. Designer gender. They exchange the truth of God for a lie. And when they exchange the truth of God for a lie, whenever we in any place in our lives exchange the truth of God for, our li uh, for a lie, we introduce confusion and evil. We introduce destruction and lack of love. Not the actual love that the Creator has for those He wants to bring into His kingdom. So it's our responsibility to, in the way God wants us to do it, to study the issue, to understand the times we live in, and to come up with a, a helpful biblical method for helping people who have this confusion in their lives, as well as the confusion about what male and female are responsible for. Jenny's question this morning was a good one, it was an excellent one. I... Um, Appreciate these hard questions, and I love handing them off to Jim. I actually would have had most of it. I just wouldn't have done it as eloquently as you, uh, and it would have been more confusing, I think. So, good job. Thank you, Jim. The culture we live in is truly messed up, and the only answer for that messed up, in quotes, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Unmitigated, unvarnished, unchanged, given to us through the Lord, and through the apostles, down through time. And God has answers for the questions that people have. So, Paul is going to, now, for if Jess is teaching next week, we'll, it'll be put off for a week or two, but we're going to get into some hairy discussion. Um, verse 14 says, Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? So you can be reading about that, come up with the questions you have, and... Uh, We'll, we'll be dealing with that over the next few days, next few Sundays probably. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for this people who truly, this group of, of Bible-believing, God-loving people who truly want to honor you in everything they do in life and in all they do in their families and in all they do in their words and their deeds. It is a delight to serve among them and to be blessed by them. Lord, we, uh, we as a people, as a body at Kootenai Community, elevate you, we elevate your word, 
And so today, as we consider these things and prepare ourselves for the message, Lord, might you uh, work in our lives to change those things which need to be changed, firm up those things which need to be firmed, and strengthen the knees that may become weak sometimes. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.